Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Small businesses play a vital role in Canadian communities. That's why Visa is supporting them. Visa is empowering women entrepreneurs through grant and coaching programs and is collaborating with partners to help small businesses survive and thrive. On visa.ca, there are business-centric tools and resources, including solutions that can help entrepreneurs succeed in a digital environment. To learn more about how Visa is supporting small businesses, go to visa.ca backslash smallbusiness. Last week, Natural Resources Canada released a list of critical minerals which it cast as the building blocks of a future low-carbon economy. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week, Jumana Salihin, chief economist for the CRU Group, a commodity research firm, joins Down to Business to talk about the impacts and paradoxes of the transition away from fossil fuels. Salahin said in the aftermath of the pandemic, governments around the world are talking about building back their economies in a green way. Big changes are on the horizon if and when the transition gets underway, Salahin said. We talked about the tensions, opportunities, and unanswered questions involved in this process. As always, the interview was edited for clarity and brevity. Jumana Salahin, thank you so much for joining me on Down to Business today. It's a pleasure to be here. As we sort of come up on one year in the pandemic, do we look any closer to a low-carbon economy than we did one year ago? Probably not, not relative to one year ago. However, I do think that the pandemic has made us as a nation much more aware of the challenges that we have ahead of us with respect to climate change. You mean just in the sense that just sitting at home gave us more time to think about these things? I think what happened really was, in, especially in highly pollutive areas, is people started to be able to see the stars again. People could hear the birds sing. They saw nature again in a way that they hadn't seen it before. But they realized that the, the cost of that was actually quite high because the whole economies were locked down. So in order to get the better climate back, the cost was very high. So they realized the challenges ahead in reducing emissions. And they realized we have to start early in order to get there. And you're based in, in Europe, in London, where I believe it is now the fastest growing electric vehicle market. And correct me if I'm wrong, though, the reason why is because the government has created a lot of policies to enable this. I think that it's definitely the case that there's been more incentive to buy electric vehicles from the government side. The European government has also been starting to talk about at some point there will be regulation, which means that people will not be allowed to buy a new fossil fuel vehicle or even a hybrid vehicle. I think there's definitely a big recognition that you know climate change is upon us and climate change means that we get more extreme weather events. So 2020 was the hottest year on record, tied with 2016. That means we saw bushfires in Australia, in California, record levels of flooding in China. This year, we've seen the ice storm in in Texas. So I think extreme weather 
is the downside of climate change. And in order to address the climate change, there is a recognition by consumers, so that's the general public, and also governments that we have to move from a high-carbon economy to a low-carbon economy. We know a few things as economists, right? Um, If we look at 2019, the total amount of emissions that carbon dioxide that we emitted into the world was some 35 gigatons, right? So, and what do we know about those emissions? We know that 40% of that comes from power generation. Then we know the next 30% is from industry. So the cement industry, the steel industry, the aluminium industry are known to be the largest industries that contribute to these emissions as well. So that's, you know, power is a big chunk. Second comes industry. And then after that, we have 20% is transport. So we're talking about electric vehicles. And then the final 10% is buildings and how we heat our buildings. So you can see that, you know, if we think about this, we know that the biggest challenge is on the energy side, the power side. So if we can move towards renewable sources of power to, you know, power our economy, whether that's lighting or running our factories, we're already going to be addressing 40 to 50% of the problem. Right. I just wanted to ask about this transition from high carbon to low carbon and, you know, the metals that you need for a low carbon world that go into an EV are very different from the metals that go into a car that runs on gasoline. And I was just wondering what that change actually means for the earth, for the ground, for the mining industry. One thing we do know is that we in order to make that transition, we need to build the infrastructure that can support the low-carbon world. So we need metals like steel, aluminium, uh, copper to build the wind turbines, the solar panels that will allow us to get that renewable energy. The second one, we talked about electric vehicles, and we know that you know there aren't enough charging stations for electric vehicles. So even if everybody was given an electric vehicle, for free, <laughs> they, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't actually drive it around because they wouldn't have the charging infrastructure that's there. So, and in particular, there are metals of the future, which we need a higher quantity of in order to support that low carbon economy. Like, I want to just talk about the politics of that. That's going to require a massive amount of copper and various other metals, then there's a certain dissidence between huge extractive operations and the sort of environmental politics that are driving this transition. And so I guess, like, I'm wondering if that means that the mining industry is going to change. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I, and I think there is an absolute tension there. As you say, some people feel that, you know, mining and digging into the earth is, is a bad thing. And they probably don't recognize that we need it to build the infrastructure. Once we have those, that infrastructure, what we have to do is maintain it. And so we can maintain the solar panels, the wind turbines, etc., through recycling. So, you know, people talk about the circular economy. And at the moment, we know that post-production scrap recycling, um, scrap collection and recycling is low like you were just mentioning, closed loop, circular economy, there I do hear a lot of talk these days about a change in practice that instead of throwing metal out, we're going to develop more recycling operations. I mean, how real is that from, from your perspective? 
plastic. I think obviously in, in the longer term, yes, if we look at recycling rates, they have gone up over time and they are higher in European countries right now relative to, say, what they are in Asian countries. That's partly because of consumer awareness, but it's partly because of the facilities available. So, you know, if I have a metal scrap, I can take it to the metal scrap yard and it's made very easy for me, whereas it may not exist in all areas in the same way that it exists in Europe. So you need to have the process, the system, the infrastructure to allow for that circular economy to take place. And you need to build consumer awareness that this is part of the climate change path if we want to get to the Paris Agreement of under two degrees by mid-century, then we do need to be doing more recycling. I mean, one of the interesting things to me about this too is if you look at a copper operation, a big open pit mine, they're using trucks that are bigger than most people have ever seen. And those run on diesel. And so the emissions associated with these things are quite high. But part of what's driving climate change is that investors, big sovereign wealth funds from nations are looking through their portfolio and saying, which of our companies have the highest emissions? And let's stop investing in those. And what's so it becomes harder and harder to finance those operations. That's absolutely right. I mean, if you look at, let's just take, take aluminium, you can see that there are some mines in the world, uh, some smelters in the world, where the emissions levels are very low at two tons of CO2, carbon dioxide, per ton of aluminium produced. But if you look at other ones in other parts of the world, mainly in Asia, which is based on coal, fired smelting, that's 20 tons of CO2 per ton of aluminium production. So you can see a tenfold difference depending on assets. And absolutely, as you said, banks and finance is becoming, uh, financiers, if that's equity funds, sovereign wealth funds, they're becoming much more wary of looking at the emissions of the assets and funding is flowing to the green. So finance favors the green. Um, consumers want to invest their money in sustainable companies. And so we do see this, if you like, miners are having to work harder in order to show they have to have the data, they have to have the information to show if they are green or not. So there's a lot more hoops to jump through, if you like, in order to prove to the financiers that you are green and that you are sustainable. If you look at um, the emission levels for steel in, in general, on, on, on average across the world, the emission levels for steel is something like close to 4,000 million tons of CO2 per ton of steel, whereas for, for aluminium, which is a kind of lighter metal and potentially more substitutable, about 800. So there's definitely for electric vehicles, we are seeing the composition of a car change where we are seeing it move for a number of reasons. You know, you move to aluminium partly because it's a lighter metal, but partly also because of its emission value as well. Okay. So we're mainly talking about 
Western investors, I think, right? When we talk about investors who are divesting from carbon intensive companies, is part of this sort of drive for climate change creating a separation between the Western world's mining industry and maybe China's mining industry and other countries' mining industry? But there definitely is that trend where we are seeing, you know, the premium being available for metals which have, you know, those credentials, if you like, as as a green or a sustainable credential that goes with it. I think the issue really will be if the consumer is prepared to pay that price, then, you know, absolutely, we're going to continue to see this diverging trend. And, you know, it, might, it, 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 it is part of what is required in order to get to the low carbon economy. Uh, going to a low carbon economy is going to cost money. And one of the mechanisms is through, you know, you said the financial market itself is doing that and consumers are willing to pay. And so that's why the price is differentiated. But, you know, another thing that is potentially going to accelerate that is carbon pricing where if you have to pay for the emissions that a factory emits into the atmosphere, um, then the price at which you sell your goods, you will have to sell it at a higher price, right? Because you've got more costs. So carbon pricing is going to have big implications for costs. And it's not linear. So it's not that a low-cost producer now will be a low-cost producer after the carbon price because it really depends where you sit on what we call the cost curve and the emissions curve. So one thing that's really important that we've seen is that some assets, say a mine, is a low-cost mine right now, but once you add in the potential for carbon, because it's a high emitter, because it's based on coal, could be very much at the high end of the cost curve after carbon pricing is introduced. So big, big changes are on the horizon if people do push forward with carbon pricing. What do the next year or five years look like to you in terms of the most important things to keep in mind? I think this year, as I said, COVID has accelerated our awareness of climate and has accelerated the climate ambition. This year, we've got a big meeting, which is the COP26, which is the UN Climate Convention in November. And we know that ahead of that meeting, there will be quite a build-up and they will be trying to get commitments from governments all over the world in order to push forward this agenda over the next decade. So 2020s is very much hailed as the decade in which a lot of uh, policies will come out to support the shift to the low-carbon economy. At the moment, it's all, it is all talk. But I do think there are signs there that action could happen, whether it happens at the pace and quantity that we want it to. There is, a, there is uncertainty over that. People have been talking about the green recovery. So if, if a government has to spend money anyway in order to stimulate and support the economy out of COVID, then they think, well, why not? kill two birds with one stone and why don't I make this a green stimulus package at the same time mm-hmm. just want to thank you so much for coming on down to business Jumana thank you so much thank you for having me 
That was Jumana Salahin, chief economist for the CRU Group, a commodity research firm. Thank you for listening to Down to Business, and thank you to Bryce Hall for music and production, Yudula Hussein for editing, and Pamela Heaven for web support. I'm Gabe Friedman, and until next week, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.